Thanks, Whitney. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. There we go. We're here. We have some graduates in the building today, high school, college, uh, PhD, and we're proud of our graduates, aren't we? Yeah. There you go. Congratulations. It's a lot of work. Got to jump through a lot of hoops to do that, and we are proud of you. We also have people that just finished their standardized test to get into different fields. For example, we have a couple that, that just took their MCAT to get into the medical field, and that's a lot of work, and that takes a lot of dedication, and we're really proud of them as well. Yep. And we should want people who are going into their fields to work hard and to be approved and have different standards that we would want them to have while we go to them with our different needs for their services. However, we live in a world that is constantly demanding that we prove ourselves. Prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. And we see it everywhere we go and we feel that pressure and I know you know what I'm talking about. It can feel like a never-ending checklist. We're demanded a lot. But what if I told you that the most important test that any of us will ever take, all of us will fail. <laughs> the most important test by far that any of us will ever make, the test of whether or not you get into the kingdom of God or not. All of us on our own, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many hours you put in, no matter how much time, no matter how gifted or talented you are, no matter how much resources you have, all of us will fail the most important test in life. That's something Jesus is going to teach us today. Now, if you remember last week, the background is Jesus, the king, has made his way south. He just started that journey. It's a 70-mile walk. He finished his ministry in Galilee. He's headed towards Jerusalem. His face is set. He's knowing he's going to go there to die for the sins of the world. But it's a long walk. And so in 70 miles, we're going to learn a lot more about the king and about the kingdom. And we're going to end up at the cross and the resurrection on Easter Sunday, April 2022. So as we follow him, let's continue to learn what he has to teach us. If you listen to the text today, I hope this main idea makes sense. Jesus receives our children, rejects our efforts for salvation, and rewards following him. He receives our children, rejects our efforts for salvation, and rewards following him. So we'll break that down into one, two, three points for our roadmap. First of all, he receives our children. We see that in verses 13 to 15. But secondly, he rejects our efforts, and I would say our childish efforts, for salvation. And we see that in the story of the rich young ruler in verses 16 to 26. And then finally, Jesus rewards following him as Peter asked that question. How about us? We left everything to follow you. And those are in verses 27 to 30. So that's where we're going. First of all, Jesus receives our children. I want to refresh your memory, verses 13 to 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. In these two verses... I see privilege, and I see the disciples chewing away 
the parents trying to bring their kids to Jesus. So what was the purpose of that? So privilege, I see privilege. I hear this word privileged used quite a bit. We are privileged people, all of us in this room for sure. We have resources that people a couple hundred years ago had never dreamed of. We live in the most wealthy nation in the world. We're taken care of. We have, we have uh, medical care, incredible medical care. We have all these things. We have, we have so much wealth. We are privileged. We have access to education. Unbelievable privilege. But I stand by the fact that the most privileged people in the world are not necessarily those that have the most stuff or live in the right places, but have people in their lives that will bring them to Jesus at a young age. The most privileged people in the world, I believe, are kids from a young age that have their parents raise them up to know God. That's what we did last week, wasn't it? With Julian and Laura bringing up Sophia and dedicating themselves as parents and we as the church dedicating ourselves to point Sophia to the Lord. Sophia is privileged to have two parents that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God that love her and that are going to teach her about who God is and what he's done for her and where she comes from and where she's going and the purpose of life and the difference between good and evil because there is one and he teaches us that in his word. And they can do that in grace because they know they're forgiven by God and their ultimate identity is not based on how well they parent but in their security in the love of God and so they can be okay with failing at times and fall on God for that. The most privileged people in the world are those that are brought to Jesus. It's priceless. So why were the disciples shooing away these parents? What was the reason for that? What was the purpose? Parents are coming with their kids, Jesus, please pray for so-and-so and they're shooing them away. Why'd they do that? I think we can come up with some ideas. You can imagine the disciples, Jesus has been teaching and healing, and they recently had that revelation that Peter said, you're the son of God. He was more than just the great prophet. So maybe they're thinking, why this distraction? Get away, parents, with your kids. Let, let Jesus do important things. He needs to go speak to more multitudes of people. Let him do the scholarly speech. Let him do the important things. But fortunately, Jesus was far more humble than his followers. <laughs> Jesus didn't see it as a distraction. In fact, the opposite. He says to these, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, in verse 14. It reminded me of Isaiah 40, when Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah, in verse 11 of Isaiah 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Jesus stuck around to pray for each and every one of those kids that were brought to him. He says in Luke chapter 18, verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Children know they're dependent. They know they need help. They're not shy to ask. And Jesus says, if you don't humble yourself, if, you don't, if, you don't, if you're not dependent like these kids who know that they need everything brought to them when it comes to this topic of salvation, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. But that goes against our pride, doesn't it? We want to earn it. We earn everything else, it seems, in so many ways. And yet it's childish to think we can earn salvation, but that's exactly what the next part of the scriptures about. 
Jesus receives our children, but he rejects our efforts for salvation. Look again at verses 16 to 26 of the rich young ruler. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you will not murder, you will not commit adultery, you will not steal, you will not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you will love your neighbor as yourself. I want to stop there for a second and point out a couple things. I want to talk about the person, this rich young man. I want to talk about two problems he had, and then we're going to move on and talk about this personal test that Jesus gave him in verses 20 to 26. But first, let's talk about the person, the two problems that he faced. Who was he? It says here in Matthew, he was a young man. We get the term rich young ruler because in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us he was a ruler. And most of the commentators will say probably of a synagogue, and they were respected, and they had authority. And so a young man, wealthy, ruler of some kind, probably in a synagogue, he seems sincere with his question. Unlike last week, the Pharisee that approached Jesus and it said, in order to test him, asked him about marriage and divorce, trying to rile up the, the crowd, get people to turn against Jesus. This rich young man seemed to be sincere in wanting to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And before we jump on him and say, oh, how, you know, that's the wrong question, that's the wrong question, before we do that, at least the way he phrased it, can we acknowledge, here's a young person with the status, wealth, things seem to be going well for him, and he's asking a spiritual question. At this point, where I, where I live and the people that I know and interact with, I would stop and just say, okay, good. We want to know about these things. It's not just what you see and touch and taste and feel. There's more to life than that. There is something to come, and this young man wanted to know, how do I get that? And that was a good question to ask. He was respectable. He was moral, at least attempted to be, religious but he knew something was missing in his life. And he says to Jesus, what good deed, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's talk about some problems. Problem number one that Jesus hones in on. This young man had the wrong idea about what good meant. <laughs> he had a wrong definition about good. In his view, he's a good person. He wants to do some more good things. He approaches Jesus respectably, and in Luke it says, he says, good teacher, as in you're good, I'm good, I do good things. What other good thing do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We throw around the word good too, don't we? We'll say that food is good, hot tubs are good, you know, things like that. Badgers are not good. Like we, we, throw, away that, we throw around that term a lot, a lot. But Jesus wants to change this man's conversation and perspective from what good thing do I have to do to remind this person there's only one who is truly good, and that's God. Only one. We just sang about that in the second song we did this morning. One, only good, only perfectly moral person would be God himself. So he had a wrong idea about what good is. So when he approaches Jesus saying, I'm good, you're good, what good thing do I have to do? He didn't realize he was talking to God incarnate. And Jesus says to him, don't you know there's only one 
who is good. And the fact that Jesus says, why are you asking me about what is good? He's trying to get the person to understand, this rich young man, that he's not talking to a normal person. You need to talk to God about that question, about how to get eternal life. But the fact that Jesus starts to then go on to explain what to do, it's a quiet claim to divinity. He had an incorrect view of good. Here's problem number two. He truly thought he had made it. He truly thought he was a good person and that he just had to do more in order to inherit eternal life. But that's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the Bible taught, what the scriptures taught. The Bible teaches none is good, no, not one. Not one is righteous. And he didn't have Romans 3 in front of him to read, but he did have the Mosaic Covenant He had the 613 commands that God had given to the Israelites to follow, how they were condensed into 10, and the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and the last six have to do with our relationship with each other. And so when the man says, which commandments do I have to follow? What do I have to do? Jesus starts listing off some. What does he say? He lists the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and fifth commandment. You will not kill, you will not commit adultery, you will not steal, you will not lie, honor your father and mother, and then he goes ahead and sums up that whole second half of the commandments about people in our relationships and says, you will love others, your neighbor, as yourself. We're talking a lot about this rich young man, but let's talk about ourselves for a second. When we compare ourselves to his law, I think all of us could look at those commandments don't lie, don't kill, don't steal. I don't think there's a person that would say, yeah, well, we, could, we should be able to do that. We all know it's wrong. And yet, if you're honest with yourself, you know you've done those things. And you know you've done those things more than once. And if you're thinking, I haven't killed anybody, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Tori. Don't forget Matthew 5. Jesus said, you are angry, angry with someone in your heart without a good cause. You've killed them in your heart. And God sees that and knows that, and that falls short of being a good person. If we look at somebody else and they've lied multiple times, we wouldn't just say there's someone that has lied a couple times or multiple times. We'd say they're a liar, right? Let's own it. We're not just people that sin. We are sinners. We're in the same boat as this young man. And we're going to find out in a little bit we're in the same boat for more than one reason. He talks about some of these commandments. He's trying to show him the mirror of the law so that he can see that he is in fact a sinner and not a good person. Jesus is trying to teach him it's not just about adding something. You can't add anything to gain or inherit eternal life. You must have to first admit that you are not good. When Jesus said, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, he wasn't joking when he said that. He meant it. We who are evil. We don't like to say that. But the problem is we compare ourselves to others. and We say, I'm good compared to this person. I'm well off compared to that person. Jesus says, none pass that test. Not one. But somehow, this young man thought that he did. Somehow, he thought he was good. And it's interesting. I've talked to, I've talked to a lot of people, and I've talked about the gospel to a lot of people, And I've talked to numerous people that have said, after we talk about the commandments, and I'm trying to show that I'm not actually a good person and neither are you, and then we get to the point where they say at one time or another, 
I think I'm a good person, even when we talked about some of the commandments. And they somehow believe that they are. Maybe that's you. Maybe you truly think deep down you're a good person. This young man did. And so Jesus gives him a personal test. And we see that in verses 20 to 26. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus gives a personalized test to this man. In verse 21, he says, if you would be perfect, same word used back in Matthew 5 that had to do with moral perfection, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you were to be perfect, he says to him, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And he would teach him more. (laughs) What's the problem? Jesus had listed some of the commandments to this young man. But I want you to notice something that's not obvious in the text. Jesus listed all of the commands that have to do with our relationship with one another. The second half, verses, commandments 5 to 10, he listed all of those except for number 10. He skipped coveting. And so what Jesus was doing was personally putting his finger on this man's idol. Coveting. When he told him to give it all away... He walked away sad. What the young man thought was his problem was not his problem. He was holding on tightly to his possessions. And he wasn't willing to let it go. Jesus knows us so deeply and so intimately. Are we willing to know what are the things that are preventing us from following him? Are we willing to say to Jesus, Lord, Would you teach me and lead me personally to know what am I holding on to with such a grip that I am refusing to let go of? What are the dreams? What are the hopes? What are the goals in your life that you think, if I don't get this, then life's not worth living. If I can't do this, then it's not worth following after God. I can follow God, but I also need this. I also need this relationship, this job, this whatever. God doesn't just want our stuff. He wants our soul. He wants our heart. He wants all of us. It's why he said to Abraham, Abraham, give me your son, your only son whom you love. He wants our dreams. He wants it all. This man failed the test and he walked away sad. He didn't truly love others as himself. He didn't truly have God first in his life. That's the first commandment. No other gods before the Lord. And so he walked away. He walked away from the God of all riches. He walked away from the God who loved him and who had a future for him beyond anything he could imagine. 
and he went the other direction. He walked away bankrupt and without Jesus. So Jesus says to his disciples in verse 23 and 24, how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's very hard, yeah. Very difficult. I have to stop and say that we're not only like this young man because we're, we're often asking the question, what do I have to do? What's the next thing I have to do? How do I prove myself next? We're also like this young man because this temptation for covetousness, for greed perhaps, we are all way more susceptible to that than I think we realize. A couple hundred years ago, people didn't have nearly the amount of resources and wealth, opportunity, transportation, technology than we do today. The kings we read about, the kings in the first century, we are all far better off in many ways than they are. To think that we are incapable of falling into the same trap that this man did is simply naive. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's difficult. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. And that's what he'll say shortly. With people, it's impossible. The disciples were shocked to hear this. How can it be that this man that's highly respected, that's, that's respectable, that has all this wealth, because people thought, they had this idea of something called retribution theology, that if you were blessed, if you had wealth, surely that means God is blessing you, that you've been, you've been doing the right things, that you're a good person, and that God is showing favor on you. And if bad things are happening to you, or if sickness falls on you or your family, or you lose your, you lose your possessions, surely that means you're sinning or you have some kind of hidden sin. It's exactly what Job's friends thought. It's how they thought. But God is teaching us the opposite here, that often it's the stuff, it's the wealth that keeps us from setting our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. It's not just difficult, it's impossible for us who want to be so self-reliant and solve all our own problems. We don't want to just add something to follow after God. We can't even think that it's just receiving something freely that would change us from the inside out and change our entire trajectory of our lives. That puts us on level playing field with everybody else who also fails that test. Jesus receives our children, but he rejects our efforts and really our childish efforts of trying to gain salvation for ourselves. But finally, Jesus rewards following him, verses 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's talk about the rewards of following him, and then this great reversal about the first being last and the last first. So the reward, is it worth it? Is it worth saying to God truly, Lord, you can have all of my dreams. You can have everything in my life. I give you all of it, the keys to it. Take it. I'm not holding anything back. Whatever you want, if you want to take everything, take it and truly mean that. Is it worth it? Handing him all of it. I hope we would say unanimously, yes, it is. What will it profit a person, Jesus said, if they gain the whole world, but they lose their soul, if they lose the real you in the process? The psalmist will say, because your steadfast love is better, better than life, my lips will praise you. Can we say that with a sincere heart? Lord, you can take all of it. I'm yours. I hope so. Jesus starts to talk about the new world. Why is it worth it? He says, in the new world, and I have to stop whenever I read something like that. I hope your imagination just soars when you're reading the Bible and he starts talking about a world to come, new world that's on its way that he's going to inaugurate and bring in the new world. How often are we, like the psalmist says in Psalm 17, people whose portion is in this life when God is calling us to a new life, to live for that world? In the new world, he will rule. And he's telling us here that we will rule with him. Is it worth it? Yes. To be with God and the people of God in a place that has permanent, lasting peace and joy? In a place where our stuff won't be stolen or taken away or where we won't be lied to or cheated? In the new world. Ephesians 2 tells us, in the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Is it worth it? You know, when we invest our time, our talent, our money into things, we want dividends. We want lasting effects. When you think about investing your time and your talents and your money into the kingdom of God on earth for the coming kingdom, I want you to think about something. Whenever I hear this verse from 2 Peter 3 about how a day is like a thousand years in the Lord's eyes and a thousand years like a day, you guys know that verse? Every time I hear that verse explained, I will hear someone say something like, you know, a thousand years on earth is like a day in God's eyes. Just, it's, it, he's outside of time. It's, it's nothing to him. And that's true. But think about the reverse of that. A thousand years here is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. If we knew the impact of our decisions on a daily basis and what that is working towards as part of our eternity, part of our eternal destination of what it's going to be like, we would take every day and say, Lord, would you please? (laughs) Would you please work through me? Would you please help me get side of myself and stop living just for the here and the now and not thinking about that new world. A day is like a thousand years. 
Is it worth it? Tell me in a million years from now. <laughs> the reward. But he doesn't stop there. He talks about this great reversal in verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, one of the first things I do is think, okay, so in the new world, if many who are last now are going to be first then, what do I have to do to make sure I'm first? Can anyone else admit that? But do you see how, again, we're in the same boat as this rich young man? Asking the question, what do I have to do? It's again the wrong question. <laughs> when we're making it about ourselves and what we can do and our strength and our power and our gifts, it's what Peter was trying to teach us in 1 Peter 4. Let each one use whatever gift they've received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone serves, let it be with the ability that God provides, the strength that God provides. If anyone speaks, let it be God's words. You see what he's trying to teach us? Let God work through you and I. He doesn't want to make it about ourselves. Oh, the surprises. The surprises we're going to see in heaven of those that we think surely, surely they're going to be at the front of the line, if you will. But we're going to find out those who have relied on God and those who haven't. Paul teaches us, 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his or her commendation from God. Did you guys hear that? The positions of honor the positions of prestige by no means assure heavenly approval. Many who are first are going to be last. The positions of honor, the, the positions of prestige today. Do you know prestige is a French word that originally meant illusion? Many who are first are going to be last. I want to give you two quick examples. Now again, I'm not God. I don't know people's hearts. But let me tell you something. I know somebody that works in a high-up position in a wealthy organization, and this person has a lot of gifts, as in speaking gifts, eloquent, he can speak to thousands of people, and many probably think, man, that person, man, they're going to be rewarded for sure. But I've seen how that person treats people off the stage, and it's not good. Now let me tell you another example. I know somebody who works for a small church. I was an intern. And he didn't have a big congregation. He spoke to a handful of people. He didn't have the same eloquent gifts. He didn't have the same, you know, prowess as that other person. But off the stage, the way he treated people, man, he cared. It seemed very sincere to me, and I spent a decent amount of time with him. And I think to myself, if I'm a betting man, where am I putting my chips? With the guy with all the gifts and the prestigious position who's impressing all these people? In all these different ways. Or this other guy, not nearly as many gifts, but really cares. I'm putting all my chips. That guy's corner, I'm telling you. Many who are first are going to be last. And many who are last are going to be first. 
one other, one other example. I have a dear friend, a brother in Christ, who is attempting to plant a church in India. And you're gonna hear a lot more about my friend in the coming months and years. We're gonna be talking about church planting. My hope is every three to four months, you're gonna see some kind of update video of the people that we are supporting across the US and my, my friend in, in India that's planting a church because we are a tithing church. So we take our tithes and we tithe to spread the kingdom of God around the world and help others. And I want us to be more knowledgeable of what's happening in that and to have a heart for that and be praying for people that we are supporting in that way. My, my brother in Christ in India told me recently, he said that his dad is giving him a hard time because he's putting all of his, a lot of his effort and time and resources in trying to plant this church. And he said, Brother Tori, my my father's upset because I'm not putting those resources and that time into, into the future of my children. And he says to me, my dad's not going to understand that I am doing it for my children as well. I'm trying to give them God. I'm trying to give them a community of people that are following after God and give them that opportunity, that privilege to be able to know and be alongside other believers and to see the kingdom of God grow in that part of the world. Many who are first are going to be last. He wants, and I hope we want, to not just have our portion in this life, as the psalmist says in Psalm, to that new world. But let me say it again. We're in the same boat as that young man. Wealth can constantly prevent us from thinking about that new world, to take care of our own things now, to constantly just add, add, add. So prone to rely on ourselves. It's not just difficult, it's impossible, Jesus says, for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How can a camel go through the eye of a needle? It can't. He wasn't giving a, an analogy based on some gate in Jerusalem, if some of you have read that. He was being, he was, he, it was almost comical to say, they knew what a camel was, okay? This camel can't go through this needle, it's impossible. Eye of a needle. But with God it is. With man, he says, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God can put that camel through that eye of a needle, humps and all. <laughs> he can do it. So when we ask ourselves, inevitably again, that question, what else do I have to do? Remind ourselves, it's about receiving what Jesus has done for us. The life, the death, the resurrection, of the Son of God. And we do that once. We put our faith in him and we're saved forever. And he calls us daily to rely on his grace and to remember again, it's not about us and our effort. It's about what our God can do, that our God can do the impossible. That test that none of us can pass, we really can't. But he did with flying colors. And he says, welcome. Come home, be part of this new world that he's making. He's the perfect rich young man that gave away all of his wealth for us, that we may become rich. So we're going to pray, and we're going to take communion, and we're going to remember again and celebrate that Jesus gave his body, that Jesus shed his blood for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we can get so caught in ourselves 
we can start asking that question again. What do I have to do? What am I missing? What do I have to add? What other good thing do I have to do? God, would you help us? We can't do it on our own. Would you help us get outside of ourselves to care about other people, to care about you, to love you first, to love others as ourselves? Lord, remind us again if we've forgotten. We're sinners in need of a savior. We need your grace. We need you, Lord, to empower us. God, we can't do anything apart from you. Not one thing. Not one thing that will last. Not one thing that will be part of that new world that you're going to bring. Lord, help us go out empowered by you to reach others with your gospel. To be confident that we are forgiven. To be free. We pray this in your name. Amen.